Afrika Zola Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko, and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sour, World leaders welcome the adoption of new development goals. Ugandan troops begin withdrawal from South Sudan and Boko Haram worsens humanitarian situation in Lake Chad Basin. In economics, rich nations urge to continue providing development funding to poor countries. And in sports news, Springbok captain retires from Test Rugby after breaking a draw. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. Violent ethnic clashes in the capital of the Central African Republic, Bangui, have left more than 36 people dead and around 80 others injured. Armed militia groups roamed the streets and protesters erected barricades using tree trunks to block Bangui's main arteries yesterday. In response, soldiers from the UN peacekeeping mission MINUSCA fired tear gas at crowds on Avenue Buganda in an unsuccessful attempt to clear the road. The clashes were the worst this year in the city where UN peacekeepers and French troops are meant to ensure security. The government blamed the violence on individuals seeking to derail elections planned for next month. A South African soldier who was seriously wounded in Sudan may be evacuated to South Africa. Another ACNDF soldier was killed when their unit was ambushed in the Darfur region. The troops are in Darfur as part of a UNAU peacekeeping mission. The SANDF says the wounded soldier is currently receiving medical care in Darfur. South Africa's specialized crime unit, the Hawks, are working with Lesotho's authorities to help trace the wife of alleged mutilator Peter Fredriksen. The Danish national stands accused of surgically removing the female genitalia of more than 20 women at his Bloemfontein home in South Africa's Free State province. 63-year-old Fredriksen was remanded in custody after police found female genitalia in his freezer. His 28-year-old wife fled to Lesotho after allegedly spilling the beans. The Hawks have vowed to oppose a bail application by Fredrickson when he appears in court again. Hawks spokesperson Nangwani Mulaudzi. The situation with the case is that uh, we view this matter as very sensitive. Investigations are still continuing. We are still in contact with our Lesotho authorities to assist us in terms of locating those ladies who believe they are victims of this crime. Tomorrow the suspect is going to court and uh, we will be opposing bail pending the investigations that are still continuing. Despite the recent industrial court ruling on the resumption of duty for the striking teachers in Kenya, there is still confusion and uncertainty in Nairobi on the suspension of the strike and commencement of teaching in all public schools. Union officials of the striking teachers have declined to direct their members to return to work, saying there are pending issues that must be sorted out before the strike is called off. They are today meeting with their top decision organs in Nairobi to deliberate on the way forward for following the court's decision. Mwaki Konyo reports from Nairobi. 
There is still anxiety and confusion all over the country on the possibility of ending the four weeks teacher strikes in all public schools in Kenya. In his ruling last Friday, the Industrial Court judge Anderson Napoza called for the suspension of the strike and ordered the government and the striking teachers to soften their position and allow students to continue with their studies. And finally, the adoption of the new post-2015 developmental agenda has been lauded as a defining moment in human history. On a day that included a visit by Pope Francis, who exhorted leaders to swiftly move towards implementation, leaders endorsed the new 17 goals that will aim to extend tend to end rather extreme poverty, fight inequality and injustice while committing to an overall of how humans treat the planet, among others. United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon called it an agenda for shared prosperity. The two tests of commitment by, of Agenda 2030 will be implementation. We need action from everyone, everywhere. 17 sustainable development goals are our guide. They are a to-do list for people and planet and the blueprint for success. That's the latest news. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. More than 2,600 Ugandan troops began a gradual withdrawal from South Sudan today after completing their 21-month military mission to help the Juba government prevent attacks on its forces by rebels loyal to former Vice President Riek Macha. The withdrawal is in conformity with the peace agreement signed last month in the Ethiopian capital. Addis Ababa and Juba. James Shimangula reports. The gradual withdrawal from South Sudan of more than 2,600 Ugandan troops began today and is expected to end on the 10th of next month. Since December 15, 2013, Ugandan troops have been helping South Sudan troops to fight rebels led by Riek Machar former vice president of Africa's newest nation. Here is President Salva Kiir's spokesman Ateny Wekateny confirming the process of Ugandan troops withdrawing from South Sudan. They will start to withdraw from South Sudan as of 28 September until the 10th of October. The last Ugandan soldiers will be out of South Sudan except those soldiers in Western Equatoria who are actually based there in pursuit of the LRA. The LRA that South Sudan presidential spokesman Ateny Wekateny is referring to is the acronym of Uganda's Lord's Resistance Army rebels that have been fighting the Kampala government of President Yoweri Museveni for more than 25 years. The rebels have retreated to undisclosed areas in South Sudan and parts of the Central African Republic. As Ugandan troops withdraw from South Sudan, the Juba government is to remove its troops from the capital, Juba, and station them 25 
25 kilometers from there. Majoka Gota Tem, South Sudan's former deputy defense minister, explains why the removal of government troops from Juba will be a relief to thousands of people residing in the capital. Heavy deployment of uh, military units and equipment in uh, civilian residential areas has always been catastrophic and we have seen the impact of horrific violence that broke out in uh, South Sudan in the national capital in December uh, 2013. And so as part of uh, uh, measures to improve on public safety and public security, it was decided that military units should be deployed out of the capital out of residential areas to the distance of 25 kilometer radius from the center. Disclosing the force that will replace the troops removed from Juba, South Sudan's former defense minister Majok Agota Tem said. Police is going to take charge of the situation and uh, we are not uh, unique in this. Most stable capitals are not manned by military personnel with heavy artillery and tanks deployed in residential areas. South Sudan's former deputy defense minister Majok Agota Tem is one of the 11 prominent politicians that were arrested in December 2013 for allegedly plotting to topple the government of President Salva Kiir. Majok Agota Tem and others faced treason charges which were later withdrawn after President Salva Kiri pardoned them. For the first time, Majoka Gotatem revealed that South Sudan troops are poorly trained. All the security organs in South Sudan, including the military itself, is underperforming because they are not well trained, they have not yet fully professionalized. But South Sudan's former Deputy Defense Minister Majoka Gotatem is optimistic that more than 12 million citizens of South Sudan are about to see a rebirth of Africa's newest nation after the formation of a government of national unity to be led by one-time sworn political and military enemies, President Salva Kiir and his new first vice president, Riek Machar. In the final analysis, we are trying to form a nation, a form a nation state that all of us uh, belong to. And so, as a result, we must generate necessary reserves of patience and uh, mutual acceptance so that we are able to manage this process successfully and have a stable country. That was South Sudan's former Deputy Defense Minister Majok Agot Atem. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanula. South Africa has joined other global nations in welcoming the adoption of the new Sustainable Development Goals 2030. The new universal framework sets out 17 ambitious goals to end poverty, fight inequality and injustice and tackle climate change. President Jacob Zuma is amongst 160 global leaders who have converged at the United Nations headquarters in New York for the World Bodies General Assembly. The three-day gathering will discuss issues ranging from migration crisis, the state of global economy and climate change. Presidential correspondent Tepo Ikaneng filed this report. It is so decided. A thunderous applause and a standing ovation as global leaders and representatives of human rights organizations endorse the new Sustainable Development Goals. President Zuma took to the podium where he placed South Africa's commitment 
to the implementation of the proposed Agenda 17 goals and targets. South Africa endorses this transformative post-2015 development agenda without any reservations. The triple challenge of poverty, unemployment and inequality that the development agenda seeks to address is the primary focus of the South African government and people. The goals are also aligned to South Africa's national development plan as well as to the African Union's Agenda 2063. More importantly, the outcome document represents a victory for developing countries as it affirms that the 2030 Agenda should build on the unfinished business of the Millennium Development Goals. However, there's still no certainty as to how this ambitious global socio-economic development plan is going to be financed. According to the United Nations, sustainable development financing costs for providing a social safety net to eradicate extreme poverty is estimated at about 66 billion US dollars a year. World Bank Group's president, Jim Kim Yong, has urged world leaders to build on the successes of the Millennium Development Goals, which expires at the end of the year. Just over the last 15 years, close to 1 billion people have lifted themselves out of extreme poverty. Such progress shows that even seemingly impossible development goals are entirely possible. We're now the very first generation in human history that can see the end of extreme poverty. We must not turn away from this challenge. We must seize the moment and use all of our knowledge and grit to reach these new goals. We will succeed. Together, we will make the world a more just and prosperous place for generations to come. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe used his address to protest against smart sanctions imposed by Western countries. The West's decision to impose travel restrictions and asset freeze on Mugabe, political associates and senior government officials has impacted negatively on the country's economic development and foreign direct investment. The recent decision by the European Union to lift the 12-year suspension on direct financial aid has done little to appease foreign investors. Mugabe says sanctions have stifled efforts by his government to rekindle the country's ailing economy. The reforms we are undertaking, including measures to attract investments, will materialize if the unjustified sanctions Zimbabwe has been subjected to for the past 15 years are removed. We call for the unconditional and immediate removal of these sanctions in the spirit of the transformative agenda we are all about to subscribe to. Once again, I repeat, remove these sanctions. They are harming our country. Meanwhile, President Zuma says wealthy nations should not abdicate their responsibilities to continue providing development funding to poor and vulnerable countries. The rich countries have often cited austerity measures as a main reason for drastic reduction in foreign aid. Many African countries rely heavily on foreign funding for various social and infrastructure development programs. Developed countries have also fallen short in committing funds to the UN's Green Climate Fund, which is aimed at helping poorer countries deal with global warming. We call on the development partners to not only meet their current commitments, including the reaffirmation 
that ODA remains the main source of development assistance for many developing countries. We also reiterate that climate financing cannot be counted as ODA, nor can it be mixed with traditional development finance. President Zuma wrapped up the day by traveling to New Jersey, where he delivered a public lecture at the prestigious Princeton University. I'm Tepo Ikaning in New York. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 19 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. Violence by the Boko Haram terrorist group has uprooted more than 2 million people in the Lake Chad Basin countries in Africa, a region the UN says was already facing drought, high malnutrition and other humanitarian challenges. UN Humanitarian Coordinator Stephen O'Brien chaired a high-level meeting to show solidarity with Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad and Niger, the four affected countries. The Lake Chad Basin region was under the spotlight at the Sustainable Development Summit this past weekend at UN headquarters in New York. O'Brien talks about the origins of the crisis and whether new global development goals will have an impact. The humanitarian situation in the Lake Chad Basin, which is a part of the overall Sahel, is characterized by having humanitarian need. And this is endemic and it's on an annual basis. It has now been desperately exacerbated by the vicious attacks by Boko Haram, which has had a major effect on the populations in northeast Nigeria, in Cameroon, in Chad and in Niger. Countries which are economically perhaps very variable, but nonetheless finding it difficult, according to that region, to resist that. But uh, it is staggering that the people who have the least are also showing the most resilience. But the attacks upon their ability to cope have now reached such proportions that if the international community doesn't step up, take notice and really support the humanitarian needs of the people in the Lake Chad Basin region, then this will move from being purely a regional catastrophe to something much wider. We do not want that to happen. 
So what has the UN been able to do so far and what are some of the challenges it has encountered on the ground? Well, the UN and its agencies and many international and national NGOs are all working very hard. The funding is in the region of the 40%, and we are now in September for the 2015 appeals in all four countries. So we're a long way behind where we need to be in terms of marshalling the resources. But most importantly, it's what those resources buy. They buy life-saving. They buy protection of civilians. They buy the ability for people to have hope which at the moment with people having to rush across the border, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, total displacement of 1.4 million people in countries where they have very little resilience and that the host communities are being so generous. But it's using up all their resilience to be able to sow the seeds for next year, to have the capacity to repel the attacks when Boko Haram seeks to uh, send forth its uh, terrible violence uh, out from its heartland. And so we need to recognize that together and very much backing the countries of the region's strategy to uh, look at the security and the humanitarian needs is a holistic approach, quite right to do that. Uh, we need to make sure the international community gives them the added capacity to be sufficient to the challenge. The member states have just adopted the Sustainable Development Goals, a new development program. Can such an initiative have a direct impact on the ground? Well, I believe it can. It is a very remarkable thing for the world to come together and to by a vote, decide unanimously we must go for these global goals, the Sustainable Development Goals. And they will have an effect because they really do put a clear expectation, a sense of real rallying of the world's political and financial intent behind getting social justice, getting peace, getting the food and the water the sanitation, the education, the medical, into the communities where there is most need, where they are most vulnerable. After all, these are all our fellow human beings, men and women, boys and girls. It is up to us to find ways of making sure that they have at least as much hope for a better life in the future as each and every one of us might expect for ourselves. And it is simply unacceptable that we let any crisis in the world uh, go either forgotten or unnoticed. And that was UN Humanitarian Coordinator Stephen O'Brien speaking to UN Radio's Isabel Dupuy. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon says there can no be sustainable future if half the world's population lacks equal rights. The UN chief is urging world leaders to make gender equality a global priority to achieve his vision of a 50-50 planet by 2030. UN Radio's Diane Penn reports. The Secretary-General was addressing a UN meeting commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Beijing Conference on Women's Empowerment. It was held on the margins of a weekend summit devoted to the new Sustainable Development Goals unanimously adopted by the international community on Friday. To drive the process, Mr. Ban called for world leaders to, in his words, step it up for gender equality. This means urgently addressing structural barriers such as unequal pay, Second, it means recognizing and alleviating women's unpaid care burden. And three, it means realizing the right of women and girls to govern their sexual and reproductive health. And four, it means ending violence against women and girls and it means equality 
in political participation and in women's representation in humanitarian response, conflict resolution, and peace building. UN Women, the UN gender entity, has been recording pledges from governments showing how they will step it up for women and girls in their countries. Uhuru Kenyatta is the president of Kenya, which hosted a global women's conference in 1985. My government will progressively address women's access to decent work and address the gender wage gap. My government is committed. My government is also committed to accelerating the implementation of the national policy for prevention and response to gender-based violence and the Prevention Against Domestic Violence Act, and will continue to engage men and boys in line with the He for She campaign. He for She is a UN women campaign that gets men and boys to champion gender equality. It was launched last year by British actress Emma Watson, star of the Harry Potter films, who's 25 years old. Young women are eager to see a more equitable world, according to Roxandra Diaconescu, representative with the Young Women's Christian Association. I am asking you today to commit to giving young women and girls everywhere access to better educational and health system, to provide better economic employment, to support the eradication of cultural and religious beliefs that encourage child early and forced marriage, to strengthen existing laws and ensure justice for survivors of all forms of violence, to end corruption and ensure transparency for us. I think it's time we turn rhetorical commitment into genuine action. Roxandra just might get her wish. UN Women said country commitments are expected to address the most pressing barriers for women. According to the agency, these include reaching parity at all levels of decision-making, eliminating discriminatory legislation, and addressing social norms that perpetuate discrimination and violence against women. Diane Penn, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorla. Africa, amuka na unai. A court in Kenya has ordered teachers to suspend the month-long strike over pay and return to work immediately. Millions of children in Kenya have been unable to attend classes due to the strike. A Kenyan court previously ordered a pay rise of at least 50%, but government is challenging this, saying it is unaffordable. Union officials have declined to direct their members to return to work, saying there are pending issues that must be sorted out before the strike is called off. Mwagi Konyo has more from Nairobi. There is still anxiety and confusion all over the country on the possibility of ending the four-week teacher strikes in all public schools in Kenya. In his ruling last Friday, the industrial court judge Anderson Apoza called for the suspension of the strike and ordered the government and the striking teachers to soften their position and allow students to continue with their studies. In the interest of the children in public schools and the rights under Article 5213C of the Constitution, respondents are hereby ordered to suspend for 90 days the strike commenced on 1st September 2015 with the consequence that the respondent members do resume duties immediately. But the Secretary General of the Kenya Union of Teachers, Wilson Sosion, says their members are still consulting on the court's verdict 
as the strike continues. We are still consulting with our lawyers and we'll come back to court for mention. And while we are still coming back for mention, the strike remains absolutely active. The primary victims of the teacher strikes are millions of pupils and students who have lost invaluable time the crisis dragged on. At least 1.4 million candidates are set to sit for their national exams next month. The government said despite the prolonged teacher strike, national exams will be conducted as usual. Education Minister Jacob Kaimeni. We shall do whatever is within our powers, yes, to ensure that the examinations are conducted. Remember, this is not the first time examinations have been conducted in this country under these circumstances. In 1997, that was done. Therefore, if you talk about institutional memory, we have had the experience on this matter. However, most parents are increasingly worried of the performance of the students in the national exams. We are just there. We, we don't know what to do. And the candidates on their part, they also don't know what to do, when to go back to school. And that dilemma is also affecting them because... Is, I don't know how we shall cover it as teachers. And, uh, you know, the National Exam Examination Council cannot alter even the dates. The dates for KCP, for KCSE are set, and they are already prepared for that. So we as parents, we are suffering. The pupils on their part, they are suffering. The whole nation, everybody is, is suffering. But in his judgment last week, the judge of the Industrial Court, Nelson Oboda, pleaded with the teachers to suspend their strike for 90 days and allow further discussion with the government on pay increment for the teachers. He ordered the government to pay teachers their salaries and allowances in full without any deductions whatsoever. No teacher should be victimized for participating in the national strike. Respondents are hereby ordered to suspend for 90 days. The strike commenced on 1st September 2015 with the consequence that the respondent members do resume duties immediately. The petitioner and the respondents within 30 days of this judgment, with the help of the cabinet secretary for the time being in charge of labor matters, appoint a neutral and mutually agreeable conciliator or conciliation committee and engage in conciliation in good faith, limited to exploring the viable modalities of implementing the award in position number 5 of 2015, bearing in mind the government fiscal policies and budgetary cycle. The petitioner will not victimize or in any way take any adverse step against the respondent's members for participating in the strike called on 1st September 2015 by the respondent and, it, and this includes payment of full salaries and allowances without any deductions whatsoever on account of the period the respondent's members participated in the strike. Officials of the teachers' union have today called their top decision August for a meeting here in Nairobi to deliberate on the way forward following the court's decision. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaiki Konyo in Nairobi. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Violent ethnic clashes in the capital of the Central African Republic, Bangui, leave more than 36 people dead and around 80 others injured. Thousands of people hold mass demonstrations in the Republic of Congo to protest against plans by President Denis Sassou to extend his rule and the adoption of the new post-2015 developmental agenda lauded as a defining moment in human history. Details at the top of the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveitwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Oui, ya, oui, ma.
What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The family of South African businessman Daniel Janssen van Rensburg, who was recently freed from a prison in Equatorial Guinea, says they are relieved he has been reunited with them once again. Janssen van Rensburg had a tearful reunion with his family after arriving back in the country. He hails from Wookville near the wilderness and was met at George Airport in the Southern Cape by family and friends. He spent close to two years at the infamous Black Beach prison in the capital Malabo on theft and fraud charges which were eventually dismissed. Mlamli Maneli has more. An emotional reunion for the Jansen van Rinsberg family. Tears of joy were also shared from all sides including himself, his wife and daughter and his parents. The last time the aviation consultant saw his family was in September 2013 before leaving to broker a deal in Equatorial Guinea. But when the deal soured, he was thrown into prison. And despite being found not guilty by that country's court, he was still detained. Since his release from prison a month ago, he sought refuge at the South African embassy. Last week, the government issued a letter stating that he was cleared of all charges against him and that he was free to leave. But Jansef van Rensberg says he had almost lost hope that will come away alive out of the West African country. There were some very dark days, and uh, I did start to give up at times and so on. Uh, but by the grace of God, you know, it, it was just miracle upon miracle. You know, the days where you're very hungry, you're thirsty because there's very little water, and the water that's there you can't drink, um, especially when you get sick, you know, with malaria. Over the past two years, his wife Melanie has campaigned tirelessly for his safe return home and says all she wants is to carry on with her life with him and children. It's like a dream. <laughs> Start over with my life with him. I can't wait. I can't wait. I still can't believe it. <laughs> this Amit reports that his life was in danger from a businessman who he was procuring the deal for. Janse van Rensberg says that he wants to spend the next few days relaxing and catching up with his family. Amlamli Maneli in George. The South African Specialized Police Unit, the Hawks, is working with Lesotho authorities in an endeavor to trace the women who are alleged victims of a Danish gun shop owner. 63-year-old Peter Frederiksen was remanded in custody last week in the city of Bloemfontein's Magistrates Court after police found female genitalia in the freezer at his house. It is believed that the majority of his 21 victims were women from Lesotho. His 28-year-old wife is among the victims. 
Jews. She has since fled to Lesotho, leaving behind two young children. Frederiksen is due back in court today for a bail application. Cornelo Lechafula has more. The Hawks has vowed to oppose bail by Peter Frederiksen when he appears in court again this morning. The suspect allegedly lured his victims to his home and sedated them before operating on them. Spokesperson Hangwani Mulawzi says this is a serious crime and they are in constant contact with authorities in Lesotho because it has become a bit challenging for them to trace the victims. The situation with the case is that uh, we view this matter as very sensitive. Investigations are still continuing. We are still in contact with our Lesotho authorities to assist us in terms of locating those ladies who believe they are victims of this crime. Tomorrow the suspect is going to court and we will be opposing bail pending the investigations that are still continuing. Meanwhile, Deputy President of the ANC Women's League, Sisin Tombella, says women are shocked by this kind of act. Tombella says they'll stop at nothing to make sure that Frederickson doesn't get bail. We are very shocked of what that man has done to us. He has indeed humiliated us as women. They're going to attend the case. They're going to do the picketing. They're going to fight that that man must not get bail until he what they engage. We are not going to allow him to be outside. We will be there in numbers picketing and saying no bail for him. Frederickson is facing two counts of sexual assault, contravention of the National Health Act, removal of human organs and intimidation and assault. Police also found surgical equipment and collection of photographs. I'm Kwanelola Khafola in Bloemfontein. The digitization of financial services and the move towards a cashless society is crucial for Rwanda's future. This is the view of the country's Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, Kleva Katete. It's hoped that the change from a cash economy will help to boost private investment and improve public governance. Katete was speaking on the margins of a UN summit on the new global development goals. She explains why Rwanda is pushing ahead with the digitization plan. Digitizing financial services or payments really is very, very critical for the fast development of our economy. And what we have done initially is that we have a vision called Vision 2020 for the ICT and for the development of our country to become a middle-income country. ICT vision envisages really the whole infrastructure, the broadband infrastructure, which has now been laid all over the country. The next thing is how to make sure that this infrastructure helps the payment system, which can allow the development to happen. And we started with the banking system, where we have digitized the entire payment system. So this has been very, very helpful. It has helped us now with the Rwandan society that they actually the mobile payment accounts are now more than twice the usual banking accounts because the Rwandans now are using it for everything. And that's why digitizing payments, really having a cashless economy, is helpful for any fast payment for the economy to keep growing. Are these services available for any Rwandan? Because we know Rwanda is a very hilly country, Mm. and I believe that uh, 4G maybe Mm. is not accessible in every village in Rwanda. Is it something which is restricted to Kigali area, or is it now widespread in Rwanda? Now, the access to the telecom is really over 60% now everywhere. It goes everywhere in the village. But for the 4G, completing the whole country will go up to the end of next year. We uh, roll it out all over the country uh, and making sure that everywhere it is accessible. So the whole idea is to make sure that the whole country is digitized 
and this is the only way we can have efficient services to the population. You said also that it helps uh, improve domestic income generation. How yeah. is it uh, important to manage uh, financing the development in Rwanda? What it means is that usually financing the development, especially from the private sector, it is the money that is in the banking system. And that means that the banking system now has more sufficient money. And this has been very crucial for Rwanda. You said it has been crucial for the private <laughs> sector, but I believe also it helped the public sector. And Ellen Clark uh, said that digitizing mob, uh, payments had also helped improve uh, public gov- good governance and reduce corruption uh, cases. Is it the case also in Rwanda? Do you experiment this uh, change? This is the clear case of Rwanda because you don't have face-to-face interaction. You don't have to negotiate with anyone. You don't have to make sure that you, you can do it anywhere. It is transparent. It avoids corruption. It really is faster. Otherwise, for someone to tell you to wait until next Monday, it's no longer there. Because this time you can do it anytime and anywhere. If you want to um, pay taxes, you just do it. it. It makes it much, much easier for the country. And that's the only way that the country can move faster. And now what you're working on is beyond the borders of Rwanda. It's to make sure that you can purchase goods and services in another country, in our neighboring countries, in Tanzania, in Kenya, in Uganda, and be able to pay it. It used to be very difficult because you'd have to look for the dollars. And this way, then, you don't have to first change to the U.S. dollars to go back to local currency, no. This time, you can just pay in any currency you want. So, so that's one of the perspectives. What are the other way forwards or perspective thinking about Agenda 2030? For the 2030, what we are saying is that we need a fast implementation. One of the ways, which is not the only ways, is to make sure that you have efficient payment system. And having efficient payment system is really having a cashless economy. And having a cashless economy that includes everybody, it means the benefits of the growth benefits everyone. And that means having the youth as part of the uh, banking system, having the women as part of the banking system, having everyone as part of the banking system. And this will make sure that everybody benefits from any investment, from uh, any growth of the economy. And that was Rwanda's Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, Kleva Gatete, speaking to UN Radio's Priscilla Lekom. The ambitious UN Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, that aim to end poverty, hunger, assure gender equality and build a life of dignity for all over the next 15 years were adopted at the United Nations last Friday as global leaders descended on the world body's headquarters on the historic occasion. Now, our question to you today is, do you think more African countries will be in a position to meet the new sustainable development goals? Give us your thoughts or your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think more African countries will be in a position to meet the new sustainable development goals. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Women, a regional alliance of women's organizations and movements, will be meeting in Port Harcourt, Nigeria, to analyze the impacts of fossil fuels extraction and combustion, including that of climate change on land, livelihoods and bodies of African peasants and working-class women. Samantha Hargreaves, regional coordinator of Women, says participants include representatives from organizations and movements in Nigeria, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Malawi, the Democratic Republic, of Congo, Uganda, and Ghana. The meeting in Port Harcourt, which takes place between the 28th of September and the 2nd of October, brings together more than 70 women participants from across the region, um, the majority from the Niger Delta and other parts of Nigeria, with 50 regional participants from Tanzania, Uganda, Ghana, South Africa, the DRC, Kenya. Malawi and Zimbabwe and the purpose of the coming together is African Women Uniting for Energy, Food and Climate Justice and so it brings together the question of fossil fuels and how it's affecting women in our different countries, not just the extraction of oil, coal and gas but the combustion of these fuels and how they then have impact on the environment and the air and how this affects food production but also people's health. And we're linking it to the broader question, which is so critical for all of us on the planet, and this is the question of climate change. And we're really asking what climate justice would look like for the majority of African women in our region. And so it's providing a platform for women to speak to each other, to analyze all of these questions, but also to put forward the solutions that women would like to see from an African perspective. Now, looking at the energy aspect of it, what would be the meeting be focusing on in particular by women on the continent? So we'll be looking at the question of fossil fuels, and we know that the oil industry and the coal industry as well have been growing in the last number of years in our region. This industry has been very negatively affected in the last year by the dip in coal and oil prices. And so we're asking very critical questions about where energy is coming from in the world today and the impact of these energy sources on people's livelihoods, on people's bodies, but also on the climate. And so we're going to be looking at the question of renewable or alternative sources of energy. This question is not simple because I think when we hear the issue of renewable energy, and right now only 1% of energy in the Africa region actually comes from renewables, but renewables, here we're talking about biofuels, so this would be jatrosa, sugarcane, and fuels that get derived from these crops. I mean, there we've seen in the last decade plus large areas of land that have been taken from peasant producers and placed under production. And that was Samantha Hargreaves, Regional Coordinator of Women in Nigeria, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. Thanks, Lulu. Coal mining towns in South Africa's Mpumalanga province have been rattled by the retrenchments of hundreds of thousands of workers in the sector. The layoff of 600 workers at Optimum Coal forms a part of a jobs 
culling exercise that has left more than the 2,000 people unemployed. According to the country's National Union of Mine Workers, most of the more than 2,000 jobs that have been lost are of those in the relative areas of the province. Volkswagen in South Africa says that the emission scandal affecting its apparent company in Germany will not lead to job losses at its plant in the country. VWSA says the plans to invest millions of dollars to build new products are going ahead. This despite an announcement by the National Regulator for Compulsory Specifications that it will assess any transgressions in South Africa. VW has admitted to rigging engines to circumvent pollution controls in the United States. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma wants wealthy nations to continue providing development funding for poor countries. Developed nations have cited austerity measures as a reason for a drastic reduction in foreign aid. Many African countries rely heavily on foreign funding for social and infrastructure development programs. Zuma was addressing a plenary session at the United Nations headquarters in New York. We call on the development partners to not only meet their current commitments, including the reaffirmation that ODA remains the main source of development assistance for many developing countries. We also reiterate that climate financing cannot be counted as ODA, nor can it be mixed with traditional development finance. Zambia's government officials will meet mining companies next week to discuss problems facing the industry. The Zambia Chamber of Mines says the job cuts hitting the nation could get worse as companies scale down operations due to electricity shortages. Zambian power companies and mining firms agreed in August to cut power supply to the mines by 30% due to a power deficit. The Chinese government has granted two independent refiners licenses to import crude oil directly. The two refiners, Dongying Yatong Petrochemical CO Baota Petrochemical Group, were granted licenses shortly after being allowed quotas to use imported crude oil. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.88 in South Africa, 10.38 in Botswana, and 10.77 in Zambia. 0.65 British pound, 0.89 euro, gold 1.146 dollars, platinum 9.45 dollars an ounce, brand crude 4.8 dollars to 0 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Tami Kluza. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. 
Thanks for joining us in your sport. Injured South African Springbok captain John Tevilas has announced his retirement from international rugby. Tevilas has been ruled out of the Rugby World Cup after fracturing his jaw in a Springboks 46-6 win against Samoa at Villa Park in Benningham on Saturday. And Springbok coach Hania Kemea says losing Tevilas is a huge blow to the team but will use the mishap as a source of motivation. John is one of them. Uh, he's the only guy that's going for x-rays but uh, you know, there's probably five, six other players with injuries. Uh, it seems it is other jaw, but uh, yeah, I just hope and pray that he's right. Um, so there's a long list. I don't want to let myself out. We'll uh, as soon as possible send the list out, and the doc is looking at everyone now. De Villiers will fly back home today and will be replaced by Blue Bull centre Jan Sifontaine. Meanwhile, Springbok vice-captain Victor Metfield admits that the past week was the toughest in his international career and believes that the message of support from South Africa and England was positive for the team and their performance against Samoa was to set things right after the loss to Japan. I think, again, like I said, um, I've played for Coach Heineken. and my wife always say I'll walk through fire for him, um, and that's why I'm playing against because of him. Um, but I think if he takes command like he did this week, it's so easy to follow him. We had a big meeting with the whole team. Uh, we got everyone together, and we just said what it means to play for the Springboks. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015, live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. South Africa's Amajimbo's coach Mule Finzeki has named a 21-man squad for the 2015 FIFA Under-17 World Cup after the farewell match against Chile, which was played at the Athlon Stadium in Cape Town. Amajimbo's will travel to South America on Tuesday to continue their preparations for the World Showpiece. The team will begin their South American camp in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where they will play a friendly match against Salesau, the Brazilian Under-17 national squad, on the 4th of October. Mule Finzeki says there's a lot of excitement in the camp, especially after facing Chile in a practice match on Saturday. And in local football, a brace from Collins Besuma and a goal each from Bongole to Giana and Spusi Somasina ensure that Pumalanga Black Aces maintained their undefeated run in the season as they thumped Marispec United 4-1 at the Kanyamazan Stadium in Nelspreet yesterday. In another match, Bloemfontein Celtic continued with their winning run in the Absa Premiership when they beat University of Pretoria 2-0 at the Tag Stadium. In the meantime, a double from Keegan Dolly handed Mamelodi Sundowns a 2-0 win over Jomo Cosmos at Olin Park in Pochepstron. The home side started the better of the two teams and had the first shot in a goal in the 12th minute, but right back Sipom Gomezulu saw his stinging long-range effort sail inches over the crossbar. And finally in golf, Thong Chang Jaidi has won the Porsche European Open for his seventh European Tour title. The Thai star finished with a round of 67 for 17 under par and a one-stock victory over Graham Storm. Nick Dai reports. Jaidi has now won seven times on the European Tour and impressively, that's three times outside of Asia. He led into the final round and he's always been an impressive performer when in contention here, making four birdies in a flawless 67 to win the duel with Storm. Jaidi's approach to the last hit the hospitality marquee but bounced off the glass to safety and he got up and down to seal victory with Storm watching and ruining a shot dropped at 17. Still for Storm, this means both maintaining playing rights for next season and coming close to a spot in Dubai at the end of the year. It's Jaidi's 18th pro win altogether and third in Europe since turning 40. He's in excellent shape ahead of the President's Cup. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour World leaders welcome the adoption of new development goals. Ugandan troops begin withdrawal from South Sudan and Boko Haram worsens humanitarian situation in Lake Chad Basin. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news, on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Debanj with a song titled Fall in Love. Mr. Love is a beautiful thing. It's done jazzy again! I'm Debanj! Oscar and Lagoche make a first call. When the Coco Master fall in love. You don't say what I don't pass, Hey! I'm in love. Are you in love? Mama, you don't make me fall in love. Fall in love.